Steve Park will come up to give today's scripture reading from Mark chapter 2. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is God's word. Thank you for reading God's word to us, Steve. The, this passage that Steve just read to us may feel culturally very distant, foreign to us, but I believe the, the main idea of this passage is simply this, Jesus will not fit seamlessly into your life. Jesus will not fit seamlessly into your life. Instead, he offers you a new life. He offers you a better way to live. This means that when you receive Jesus, that is you believe in him, trust in him, he will shake things up. He will not simply seamlessly fit into the status quo of your life. He intends, in fact, to bring radical change to you and to me. And that's really, really good news. In today's passage, I hope we see that. We're going to see in this passage Jesus speaking to people who are stuck in old ways. They're stuck in old patterns. They're stuck with old expectations. And he tells them, even as he tells us that what he offers is something altogether new and infinitely better. There's a question that's asked of Jesus here in verse 18 of Mark chapter 2. I want, you, I want to invite you to read this question with me one more time. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, that is, they were abstaining from food. They were not eating. And people came and said, to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why are your disciples the only ones who are eating? Now let me give you a little bit of background on fasting. Not a whole lot of background because it's really not the point of the passage, but a little bit of background so we can understand the context. In the Old Testament, that is in the Hebrew Scriptures, God commanded his people to fast but he really only commanded them to fast once a year. That's on the annual Day of Atonement. A day in which a sacrifice was offered up to atone for, is to, to make up for, to, to pay for the sins of the people. And that Day of Atonement was meant to be accompanied by fasting. No one would eat. It was an act of, it was an expression. By ceasing to eat, they were expressing contrition. They were meant to be experiencing, a, uh, expressing a sorrow over their own sin and, and the sense of repentance, turning away 
from sin. So that's the only place that fasting is actually commanded in the Old Testament. But there are other parts of the Old Testament where fasting is described. It's not prescribed, but it's described. We see God's people fasting for different reasons. Sometimes they fast as an act of mourning, an expression of sadness. They stop eating for for a prescribed period of time. In some cases, it's when God's people are lamenting. At some points, they fast when they were pleading with God for rescue or for help. They They were giving up food and in a sense saying, what we need now is not food, Lord, we need you. What you can offer us, the rescue, is more needful to us now than even food. But Pharisees, by the time we get to the first century, had turned regular fasting into a requirement. They themselves, these Pharisees, was a particular religious group within uh, the Judaism of Jesus' day. They may have had good intentions. They wanted God's people, Israel, to be more righteous. They wanted to inspire the people of Israel, to obey God's law more conscientiously. But in order to do that, sometimes what they ended up doing is adding to God's law, adding commands. God said, fast once a year. They said, no, we're going to fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that tradition. God doesn't necessarily even condemn that tradition. He just says, it is a tradition. It wasn't a command from me. Pharisees fasted twice a week, and some of them had the habit of letting people know that they fasted twice a week. You know how it is. Sometimes when you're doing something that you feel particularly proud of, you think it's important, you think it's good, you find yourself telling other people about it, right? Even when they don't ask. Well, that was the Pharisees. You remember the parable that Jesus told. Some of you might remember in Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable about a a tax collector who was the the, the worst of the worst sinners in the eyes of the society of that day. He's in a synagogue, and there's a Pharisee there too, and the Pharisee prays to God, but he's really talking to everyone else in the room, saying, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. Did you hear that in the back? I fast twice a week as if to expect the applause, not only of the people in the synagogue, but maybe, maybe even the applause of God himself. In Matthew 6, Jesus himself talks about fasting. He doesn't denigrate it. He doesn't say it's bad. But he says, when you fast, don't do it like the hypocrites. Don't do it in such a way that everyone will know that you're fasting. Instead, do it in secret. You don't need to tell anyone. You see, for some of these Pharisees, fasting wasn't so much about God. It wasn't so much about humbling themselves before God. It wasn't so much about expressing their neediness to God and their dependence on him or their sorrow before him. It was more about themselves, fasting. And their other practices as well, which they did publicly, were about proving themselves to be holy, proving themselves, showing themselves to be more righteous than everyone else. Their, their identity, in a sense, their sense of security was not rooted in what God had done for them, but in what they were doing for God. Fasting, giving, praying. 
all became what were actually good things had become prideful and burdensome. And the reason I say prideful is because they, they would do them in such a way as to say, look at me, look what I'm doing. Prideful. But it was also really burdensome because they always had to wonder, am I doing enough? Look at how I'm fasting, but then deep down in their hearts they're wondering, am I fasting enough? Am I fasting enough to impress everyone? Am I fasting enough to impress God? Is it enough? And so the Pharisees, to some degree, were very proud and deeply insecure and unhappy. And they asked Jesus, why, why aren't your disciples, or someone asked Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus answers in a way that he often answers with a question. He doesn't give them a theology of fasting. He doesn't say, well, here's, here's exactly why I don't fast. And fasting is okay. And I fasted back uh, at the beginning of my ministry when I went out to the wilderness for 40 days. I fasted then. And when I'm, uh, when I'm gone, uh, my disciples are going to fast. He doesn't, he doesn't go into a deep, detailed explanation of the, the pros and cons of fasting and the meaning of it and all that. Instead, he gets, because he knows that's not really the point, he goes right to the point in verse 19 when he asks this question. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The bridegroom is here, he says. This is a time of feasting. No one fasts at a wedding. Again, he says, when the bridegroom is gone, he'll he'll explain, then my, my disciples will fast. But right now the bridegroom is here. Think about what a wedding looks like. I don't know if you enjoy weddings, but I do. I love them. Because they're a time for celebration and a time for giving thanks. They're not a time of mourning. It's not a time of contrition. If you've received a, a wedding invitation from someone's family, it usually doesn't say, please join us as we mourn the wedding of our daughter, you know, and, and grieve the addition of this new son-in-law to our family, Right? What does it say? It says, come and celebrate with us. Come rejoice with us. It's a day of feasting. Imagine if you showed up to a wedding reception and there was no food. (laughs) Just tables. Maybe some glasses of water. And the father, whoever's presiding there, the MC says, everyone take a seat. We're going to spend some time in prayer. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to repent before the Lord. And you would say, what kind of wedding is this? Can I get my gift back? What, what's going on? The wedding is a time for feasting. Ecclesiastes 3 says that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Well, weddings are a time to laugh and to dance. It's a time to feast. I once scheduled uh, this kind of fast. It was kind of like a cleanse. I don't know if you've ever done this. Not for, not for spiritual purposes necessarily, but like for health purposes. You ever do like a cleanse? You have certain foods you just stop eating altogether. You're just drinking these little shakes and, and, and starving all day long. I scheduled one of these one year, and I made the mistake of, of overlapping it with Thanksgiving for some reason which is a very, very bad move. So while everybody else is feasting and celebrating and giving thanks to God for his abundance, I'm, I'm drinking some water and thinking, what have I done? It was incongruous. It made no sense. 
This is a time to feast, Jesus says, because the bridegroom is here. And let me explain that. In the Old Testament, God often calls himself the husband of his people. He says, you, Israel, my people, my chosen people, you are my bride. In Isaiah 54, God says to Israel, your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts. And then later we find out that God's bride doesn't just include ethnic Israel, but it includes people from every tongue and tribe and nation, every language and people group who believe in Jesus are called his bride. In Isaiah 62, God says that he rejoices over his people like a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. So, so listen to what Jesus is saying here when he says the bridegroom is with you. We're not going to fast. He's saying God has arrived. God has arrived. And this would not have been lost on, on the Pharisees and anyone else, any, any Jew who was there listening. They would have said, wait a second, he's, he's calling himself the bridegroom? And Jesus says, yes, um, with his arrival, God himself is invading this world. That means the kingdom of God, the rule of God has arrived to bring rescue and restoration and to bring renewal. And according to Jesus here, to bring gladness and celebration. This is no time to fast, he says. But those who were questioning Jesus just couldn't see it. It's as if Jesus is saying to them, the bridegroom is here, but you can't see it because you're so bound up in your traditions. Again, they're not necessarily bad, but to the degree that you are bound up with them and blinded by them, or, or to the degree that you're holding on to these traditions for significance, for security, you're missing the fact that God and his kingdom have arrived. This was a decisive, pivotal point in the history of God's people. God was fulfilling promises here, ancient promises like these. Look at in, in Zechariah 8, 19. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts. He's talking about fasts here. He says, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. God was pr promising through his prophet Zechariah, there's going to come a day when all the fasting is going to turn into feasting. And Jesus is saying, this starts now. I'm here. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, the Lord of hosts says, will make for all peoples. Notice, that's not just ethnic Israel. That's all peoples from every people group around the globe. He will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. It's a party, God is promising. And now, centuries later, Jesus arrives and says these promises are being fulfilled presently. Jesus is also saying to these people, and to us, following me is not compatible with your existing traditions. Following me is not compatible with your existing traditions. And, 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 and he's speaking to, again, he's not saying that the traditions in and of themselves are bad, but he's saying the way that you are interacting with these traditions, the, 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 
the, the place and the purpose that they have in your lives, it's not compatible with following me. We're going to see this eventually when we get to Mark chapter 7. Jesus talks about the fact that the Pharisees in his day, and the scribes, had created so many new laws and new traditions that they were requiring everyone to obey. He basically confronts them and says, you've left the commandments of God and you're holding on to the traditions of men. And you're saying that these traditions of men, these, these, these human man, man-made traditions somehow will get you closer to God. But you've rejected the words of God himself, the commands of God. And the Pharisees, sadly, had created traditions and practices and then we're using these traditions and practices to show themselves to be good, decent people, to earn approval from God, to prove that they were okay, that they were good, and, and in some ways to, to pacify their own guilt. I'm carrying guilt, perhaps I'm carrying shame, I can pacify that, I can quell that by doing certain things, by fasting twice a week maybe, or by giving away enough money. Or by saying my prayers enough times, maybe I can quiet the guilt in my heart and and, and stop this aching, aching sense that something is wrong. And Jesus says, following me is not compatible with that. I've got something new for you. This raises the question for us, what are your religious traditions? What are your religious traditions? And and again, I'm not saying that all religious traditions are bad. I'm asking, what is it, what kind of habit or practice do you have in your life that you find yourself looking to to find a sense that you're okay? To find some righteousness. To, 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 To justify yourself. You see what I'm saying? To find peace. Are there practices, things that you feel like, if I do these things, I won't feel so bad about myself. If I do these things, then maybe, maybe I can earn the love of others and the love of God. If I keep up with these traditions. Again, they may not be fasting twice a week. It could be something else. It could be coming to church for all I know. What are your religious traditions? And, and, and the fact is, that when I say religious traditions, I don't even necessarily mean churchy things. By tradition, it could mean anything that you do consistently, perhaps even do uh, uh, routinely, you do it automatically. It might not even be religious at all, but it's something, it's a practice that brings you comfort and distraction. Maybe it's the, 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 the mind-numbingness of scrolling through social media. That's a tradition that brings you some kind of peace, distraction. I'm not thinking about the guilt. I'm not thinking about the shame. I'm not thinking about the hurts. I'm I'm, I'm distracting myself from all that's wrong in my life with this. Maybe it's escaping through uh, binge-watching, whatever you enjoy binge-watching. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's particular relationships. 
substances, who knows? It could be anything. To, to think that any of these practices could in some way be thought of as a, as a religious tradition in the sense that it quiets your soul. It makes you feel a little bit better for a little while. I believe Jesus' interaction with these folks leads us to ask that question, what is it for us? Jesus did not come to supplement those practices with one more thing to help bring you peace and comfort. Yes, you've got binge watching, you've got social media, maybe you've got porn, maybe you've got that relate, all these things that are giving you some, some little bits of peace and comfort, and, and Jesus is here to, to supplement that. No. No, he refuses. He refuses to play that role. And that's very, very good news. Very, very good news. Because if you're anything like me, you, you've probably felt tired of some of those habits and practices that you've looked to for peace and satisfaction and distraction. You found that they find they, they, they disappoint you in the end. They end up leading to more shame, more guilt, more dissatisfaction. Jesus says, I'm not here to supplement those traditions and practices. I'm here to give you something altogether new. Look at, the, look at the two illustrations that Jesus gives. They're like these little mini parables uh, in the next verses, in verse 21 and 22. And both of them, what they do is they show us that Jesus and his gospel are something new. Jesus cannot be an additive, an add-on to our lives. Look at you, as you look at verse 21 and 22, you see the contrast between the words old and new, old and new, over and over again. Let's read it together. Verse 21 says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears, tears away from it, a new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Again, this is culturally distant and foreign for us. Maybe, maybe not. The, the point with regard to the first illustration is simply this. If you have um, an old garment, a piece of clothing that's been used and washed and dried and washed and dried, what's happened is it's probably shrunk over time, right? The, the fibers, they, they constrict, or the fibers shrink, I think is what happens, and, and it kind of all constricts. He says you got a hole in an old garment and you put a brand new piece, piece of fabric on it as a patch, what's going to happen is when that patch is washed and dried and washed and dried and begins to shrink, it's going to tear away, it's going to rip, further rip, your damaged garment. The point is, you don't need a patch, you need a new garment. You need a new pair of pants, a new robe. And then the second, the second illustration has to do with, with wine and wineskins. In Jesus' day, it was common practice to uh, transport and store wine inside these, uh, these vessels that were made of, of goat skin often. Uh, it was leather, basically. And they're, they're very useful, it seems. But over time, the leather from the, from the wine sitting in there and fermenting and going through different chemical processes, the, the leather would start to get brittle and old and crack. Maybe you if you're anything like me, you're like, oh, we can still get more use out of this thing. Let's keep using it. Let's keep using it. Let's keep using it. And Jesus is saying, well, you put some new wine in there, and that chemical reaction might just burst the whole thing. And now you've lost the wine, 
and the wineskin is ruined too. You don't need fresh wine in your wineskin. You need a whole new wineskin. You need to start from scratch is what he's saying. You see, Jesus is more than just a patch on the broken parts of your life. He's more than just amending a covering of the torn parts of your marriage, of your own experience. And he's more than just a a fresh injection of wine into your life. He's more than just, 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 he does more than just top off your glass. No, he says you need a whole new glass and everything in it. He's more than a Band-Aid. You saw this last week when when KK was preaching to us from earlier in Mark chapter 2. He told us, as Jesus told us, that those who are sick are in need of a physician. If we're sick and our sin has in fact made us deadly ill, he doesn't say those who are sick are in need of a Band-Aid for their ouchie. Right? We don't need a Band-Aid. For, he says, if you're sick, you need more than a Band-Aid. That's what he's saying here. You need more than a patch, more than some gauze over that, that chafed knee or that scraped knee. You need surgery. And that's what Jesus is offering. Something new, something completely different from the traditions and practices that religious people of his time were using to meet their spiritual needs. He had brought new teaching. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, uh, the people heard Jesus teaching. And what they say? They said, oh, we have never heard this. This is new teaching, they said. New wine. This is new teaching. And they also said it's new teaching with authority. Jesus has the authority to shake things up in our lives. He has authority to, to shift our priorities around. So you see, again, receiving Jesus doesn't fit in doesn't seamlessly fit into your life. He's not here to, to just fit in and, and, and slightly improve the status quo of your existence. No, his kingdom is not compatible with our lives as they are. Instead, he arrives to bring complete renewal. Last week, I was trying to open a document, and I couldn't open it. Instead, I got this message. I don't know if you can see it there. It says, you need a newer version of Pages to open this document. I never use pages anymore, but I had to to open this document. He says, oh, you need a new version. So I said, okay, let me uh, download the new version. I went to download the new version, and when I got it, I got this message. It says at the bottom, it says it requires Mac OS. I don't have that operating system. My operating system's out of date. You need a newer one. And I said, oh, I was starting to get frustrated at this point because I'm in a rush. I just want to open this document. And I'm like, oh, now I've got to download. Now I've got to update my whole operating system. And, and I'm like, what's next? I'm going to click update or and, and it's going to tell me your computer is not you need a whole new computer this thing's not compatible you know that's what i was afraid was going to happen it frustrated me it frustrated me because what i expect is seamless compatibility don't we love seamless compatibility i just wanted an up i just wanted to update this app so i can go on with my life I just need a little bit of an upgrade, a a little bit of help here, a little bit of an upgrade so that I could move on and do what I need to do. And here is Apple telling me, no, you don't need a little upgrade. You need a big upgrade. You need an overhaul. And that was frustrating. 
Jesus does not offer us seamless compatibility. <laughs> He's going to change things. He's going to change things. And he doesn't require us to change our lives before we come to him. He simply says, no, you, don't, you need much more than an upgrade. You come to me. I'm going to give you what you need. But it's going to be all new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, if you have believed in Jesus, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. And this is not, now, I remember reading this as a, as a, as a young Christian and thinking, where's all the newness I was expecting, right? Because I was expecting, like, like, Shazam kind of new. Like, I believed in Jesus. Shazam, I look better. I feel better. I've got superpowers now. Super holy powers. It wasn't the case. Maybe you have come to the same realization. But what this means is that when you are in Christ, when you have believed in Jesus, you are new. You have a new identity. You now have Jesus' spirit living in you, and you have now begun the process, the long process of experiencing change in every area of life. Jesus is not an additive. We might think sometimes that he is, and sometimes I think that Jesus gets peddled that way, gets taught that way. Like, like if you will believe in the name of Jesus, here are all the benefits, the benefits that will immediately come to you. Your, um, your credit score is going to get better. Oh, your marriage is going to be great. Oh, you know, you, you like the house you live in? Oh, you, you're going to have a better house. Your vacations are going to be better. You're going to look better. Some of us are too, either too smart or too cynical to believe that. But we might think, I... Maybe, maybe, you know, I don't, I don't need a complete overhaul in my life, but I could use some, some of that forgiveness. I could use some forgiveness in my life. And maybe if I believe in Jesus, I could just get some of that. Some of that. Like, like he's a little sugar in our coffee. J just the right amount to, to sweeten things up. My life, it feels a little bitter. It's unpleasant in some areas. So, so a little Jesus will make it better. Maybe, maybe a little bit of church or a, a, little bit, a little bit more community might help. And so we're trying to, to make small calculated additions. <laughs> Sometimes we may think I can continue to pursue the same things. I can continue to find purpose in the same things that I've always found purpose in. I can continue to find my identity in the same things that I've always found identity in. I can continue to to, to center my life on accomplishments or career or acceptance or comfort. But now I just get to be a Christian too on top of that. I can just add that in by believing in Jesus. There is a misconception that I can somehow center my life on whatever I want, even myself, and just add Jesus into the mix. But Jesus refuses to be an additive. He refuses to. He is not. Following Jesus is not compatible with that kind of life. Luke 13. Compare, compare that kind of mindset to what Jesus says in Luke 13. He says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You see what Jesus is saying here. Uh, he's saying, 
Jesus, King Jesus and his rule are not, are not an additive. They're not like a little bit of sugar in your coffee. It's like leaven. It's like yeast that someone takes and, 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 and hides in some lumps of flour or some loaves of dough. And what happens? What happens? The, the, the leaven, that yeast, it permeates the whole thing. And it begins to transform the whole thing so that it is something other than what it was before the yeast was put in there as it begins to rise. So, so this means, for instance, for us, we're living for ourselves. I'm living for myself. Submitting my life to Jesus as king, receiving his rule into my life is meant to transform me into someone who no longer lives for myself but lives for him. Who no longer cares about my own well-being but cares about the well-being of those for whom Jesus cares. The well-being of those who no one else seems to care about. All of a sudden begin to matter to me because the kingdom, that yeast, has begun to permeate and grow and transform me. So my goals and my priorities are no longer just shaped by my own upbringing and my own what I've learned in my experiences. Now, now my values and my priorities and my goals are starting to be influenced also by the ethics of Jesus' kingdom, by what he values, by what he considers important. Your conduct, once you believe in Jesus, begins to get shaped by his ethics. Your beliefs begin to get shaped by his promises. You see, all things are made new. And again, it's not like Shazam. It's a lifetime process. But Jesus says, if you're following me, you're committing yourself to this lifetime process. You're submitting yourself to this lifetime process. His kingdom invades and takes over. One day, one day when Jesus returns, his kingdom, his rule will will permeate all of creation. (laughs) But right now, it permeates and takes over the lives of those who believe in him. Last week, um, KK showed us, he preached to us about Levi, who was a tax collector. A tax collector who heard the call of Jesus to follow him, and he did follow him. And if you read the Gospels, you find out that Levi ceased to be a tax collector. He ceased to be an extorter, a thief, a traitor to his people. Instead, he became a giving, loving follower of Jesus. I think that's a picture of Jesus, not seamlessly kind of fitting into the life of Levi, but it's about Jesus invading his life and taking over. Part of maturing, I believe, as a follower of Christ is to gradually recognize areas of our lives that we are keeping from him. As we grow as followers of Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, and I trust this has been the case for you, gradually seeing over over time there are pockets of my life that I have chosen or perhaps even subconsciously decided to not turn over to Jesus. I don't want to experience change in those areas. What are the areas of your life that are not that you're not submitting to him. Are there any? 
Are there areas of life that, that you, you, as you think about it now, you're, you, you have to say, I, I refuse to submit this to him and be transformed? In, in these other areas, yes, I'm submitting to him. He's king over that, but he's not king over this in this area over here. It's, a, it's as if I don't, I don't want to yet let the yeast permeate this area of my life. It could be your sex life. It could be your relationships, your career, the way you parent, the way you spend, the way, anything. What is it? I think, um, I think it's worth acknowledging the fact that receiving Jesus because, it is a, because his purpose is not just to seamlessly fit into your life, but to renew and change your life, receiving him is risky. It's risky. Um, I don't usually do this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to just indulge me for a moment. I want to share with you just a, for a minute here um, my own experience in this regard, my own personal testimony with regard to this. This fear of submitting all my life to Jesus is basically the main thing that kept me from following Jesus for half of my life. I was going to say most of my life, but as I do the math, at this point it's about half. <laughs> this is what kept me from believing the gospel and following Jesus. It was fear it was because my parents had taught me well enough and I'd been around, I'd been around gospel preaching long enough to know that Jesus was not just an additive. I just, couldn't just, just, just kind of, kind of seamlessly like bring him into our, my life in a compartmentalized way and then go about living the way I wanted to. I had learned that to let him in was to submit everything to him. And that scared me because there were aspects of Jesus that I wanted. I wanted forgiveness because I had a lot of guilt and I, I was clear that I'd failed in so many ways. But what I wanted, in a sense, was an upgrade. I wanted an upgrade. I wanted an upgrade in character. I wanted to be a better person, a harder working person, a, a better boyfriend at the time. I wanted to be just a better guy. I wanted to be like just a better version of myself. And, and, and what the gospel seemed to offer me was not just an upgrade, but an overhaul. And I wasn't sure that I was all in for that. Until I realized how deep my need was. Until I realized that an upgrade was not enough that being a little bit of a better person was not going to do it for me. And so through listening to God's word and, and reading his word, God began to show me that what I needed was more than a Band-Aid. <laughs> the traditions that I was holding on to, the practices that were bringing me some measure of peace were not really working anymore. Sexual relationships were not satisfying anymore. Substances were just leaving me addicted and further, further in need of help. My experiences were not proving satisfactory. They, I, everything that, that I was trying to get was proving to not really give me what I needed. And so finally, God brought me to a place where I was compelled to surrender. And what I have found is that what God gives me in Christ is better than anything I could have gotten without him. That more than an upgrade in character, a better work ethic, just, just an uptick in some areas of my life, more than that, what I've been experiencing for the past 25 years has been a kind of surgery, a kind of long, <laughs> sustained overhaul. He never was compatible with my life, 
but what he's been doing is he's making me compatible with his kingdom. And I trust that that's been your experience as a, if you're a follower of Jesus. He did not slide into your life and everything stayed the same. He came in and began to make you compatible with his kingdom. I'm still resistant to his kind of leavening work. I'm doubting him at times. At times I wonder if the risk is too high. I, must, I wonder if I can really entrust this area of my life to him or that area of my life to him. Should I really obey him in this area? It would be so much easier not to. It's a struggle. But life in Jesus is worth the risk. This is a word for you if you have not believed in Jesus. It's a word for you if you have believed in Jesus. Continuing to submit every area of your life to him is worth the risk. He doesn't promise that all that you desire will come to pass. No, we're going to face disappointments in this life. We will face, we will have reasons to mourn. We will have reasons to, to grieve in this life. We're going to suffer loss. Some of us are experiencing deep loss right now, but we can face it with hope. With hope. Because Jesus is present with us by his spirit in suffering. And he gives us resources to persevere. And one day he's going to return. He's going to return physically. And then we will feast. We will feast. This is how God describes it. And we'll close with Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. I wonder who that multitude is. Is it the multitude of all who have believed in Jesus? Is it the multitude of all who have trusted in God? Or it's simply God's voice. It sounds like a multitude. It sounded like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready and the angel said to me, write this, <laughs> blessed, happy, happy are those who were invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. These are the true words of God, the same God who says, behold, I am making all things new. Entrust your life to me. Keep entrusting every area of your life to me. And you know what you're going to find out? I am making all things new. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your commitment to renew and restore and transform us. We confess that we fear that at times. For some of us, maybe that fear is keeping us from trusting you, keeping us from surrendering our lives to you. For some of us, maybe it's causing us to keep certain areas of our life to you, from you. We know that you're not just compatible with the saddest quo of our lives, and you will make changes. We ask that you would make us willing subjects. We ask that you would remind us That in the painful transformation that at times we experience, there's love behind it all. We ask our Father that you would bring healing where there's hurt in our lives.
where there's sin, that you'd bring repentance and restoration. Where there are broken relationships, would you bring reconciliation? We trust you, Lord. We want to trust you when you say that you're making all things new. Help us to see the ways that you are renewing us. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen.